welcome everyone to the Friday morning post-apocalyptic Thursday night football edition of the Unexpected Points podcast, your home for everything analytics in the NFL, including my adjusted scores. Uh, Looking back at this game, you'll be surprised that it's not as bad as you might think. I may need to reevaluate my whole my whole methodology here. Um, so people had some pretty funny responses last night when I uh, kind of gave the old piece out that I was leaving after Russell Wilson's first interception, which was just an ugly, you know, kind of lobbing the ball up, trying to get the ball in there. Although um, not the not the Gilmore interception later on in the game. Um, although that might have been Gilmore too. I got to check the numbers on that, but. Um, when I said I was out, some people responded by saying adjusted score zero, zero for this game. And yeah, I wish I could say that, but some of the peripherals were actually okay. And again, I'll get into it. It's just nah, man, no conversions on third down, um, no ability to generate any explosive plays, things like that. And that's what's going to make a game look really, really ugly when you're not converting in those situations. But there's actually a decent amount to talk about here in this game. Despite the fact that the fans uh, were in agreement with me at Mile High Stadium, Broncos country was in agreement about leaving this game early. For those who didn't see, uh, this is what transpired. Going into overtime, you have a um, two-and-two team fighting within the division, looking for potentially you know, getting into that playoff race. You spent all these draft picks and hundreds of millions of dollars guaranteed on your new quarterback it's a tie game it's going to overtime and this is what we saw in mile high stadium <laughs> anyway <laughs> they're leaving the broncos fans are bailing they've had enough it's nine nine they're like the heck with it i'm out yep i'm out of here yes the broncos fans were like me said yay we are not east coast dads i think they're mountain time dads out there um, but the mountain time dads and moms are like, man, do I want to pay for another hour of babysitting for this for this game? Hell no. Uh, we need to get these kids to sleep. Uh, we need to get ready and get, get going because even with a shortened NFL overtime, you knew it wasn't going to be over on a touchdown on the first drive in overtime. And it was not. Um, how it did end is probably typical of how everything went in this game. And the Colts pull it off via their defense and via Stephon Gilmore. Fourth and one. Surveys, good protection, slides, fires, broken up in the end zone. Gilmore on Sutton. So the defensive player of the year a couple of years back and somehow, someway, the Indianapolis Colts, who took their... So somehow, some way, the Indianapolis Colts win it. And I'll get into the specifics of that play, the decision, which I don't think is very controversial at all on that play. A couple of other decisions, which could have been different. Definitely could have been different and discuss the pros and cons of everything that went on there. But first, let's get to the headlines on this game. Broncos at home against the Colts. They were three-point favorites. Looks like it opened at two and a half and moved up to three after the Colts have been struggling also struggling mightily offensively in recent weeks. Jonathan Taylor out of this game. Javante Williams out, although that probably had the lesser effect on this. 
the Broncos did lose Garrett Bowles midway through the game. I don't know if that had a huge effect. I think Russ took most of his sacks before that point, but it's something to look at going forward when you lose your, your left tackle there. Final score, 12-9. to Colts win in overtime. Adjusted score. Now, now we're going to get into it here. Again, I may have to reevaluate my whole meaning of life here, looking at this adjusted score. 20 to 16 Denver Broncos adjusted score here. Now, why? Well, the number is somewhat inflated by the fact that I incorporate the number of plays teams are running and the number of drives they have. So this was a lot of drives. Each team had 14 drives in this game. We're typically we're talking about, you know, 11, 12, 13 drives, maybe in a game. Um, so that's part of it. Both teams, well, I shouldn't say both teams had over 70 plays. They averaged over 70 plays. I think the Colts had 69 plays on offense. The Broncos had 73 plays on offense. So, you know, that's a lot of plays for teams average somewhere in the 60s normally for plays. So they had like a high play count and a high drive count, which is is influenced by the fact that they were somewhat successful on both drives, moving down the field for both teams in overtime. And that's what bumps up that score a little bit. If we were just looking at regulation and taking it down, both of those teams adjusted scores probably come down by about five, six points in this particular game. Uh, the other thing that goes into this is remember, the adjusted scores are based partially what differentiates them from the actual score and the actual efficiency on offense is the success rate. Teams have more consistency in how often they're successful than they'd have consistency in their actual efficiency because of the outlier type of plays that can happen in each direction. So the Broncos had a 27th percentile success rate. The Colts were 18th percentile. So bad, but it wasn't like both of these teams were under the 10th percentile in their success rate. Um, Again, overall, the Broncos 5.3 yards per play. Not great. Not great by any stretch, but not horrible. Uh, Colts were at 4.8 yards per play, which is pretty bad. But remember, they won a game against the Chiefs a couple weeks ago where they were averaging 3.8 yards per play. So the lot of other factors went against these teams that were on average being successful, you know, bad but not horrific success with their offenses. They just couldn't come through on the biggest plays. The third down numbers for the Broncos in this game and the fourth down numbers, as they didn't make that last fourth down, they made one missed one on fourth down. So net, they were bad on fourth down also, um, were horrific. Again, horrific, horrific, horrific in this game. Um, They were two of 15 on third down. I mean, I don't care how bad your offense is playing. You're going to convert more than two out of 15 third downs. I mean, we're talking about a, you know, 15% conversion rate on third down. You're just normally going to be better than that. That really went against them. They lost about 19 expected points on third down. So on first and second down, they were doing things to gain some expected points. And then they were just losing it all with their inability to convert on third down. Colts were four of 16 on third down. So 25%, you know, ain't great, but Still better than what we saw from the Broncos in this game. But it, but again, those are bad numbers which pump up the Colts number up to being 16 uh, adjusted score in this particular game. Uh, again, with the Broncos, I don't know. You, know, you think these things are going to turn around eventually, but 
as it continues further and further, they continue to have the third down problems and the red zone problems in particular. 0 for 4 as far as getting a touchdown on their red zone trips. Two of those red zone trips, they end up with zero points on those trips. They have a 21% red zone touchdown rate so far this season. So about one of every five times they're getting into the red zone, they are scoring a touchdown, which is the worst in the NFL, and it's it's not even close. 40% is the next closest. So double the the touchdown conversion rate is the next closest. So the Broncos, no matter how bad they are, they're going to get a little bit better than that going forward, you'd hope. Uh, okay, let's get into some of these play calls before I get into a lot of the particulars in the rest of the numbers here, because I think there's some interesting things to think about here. The first was critiqued by Herb Street on the broadcast, and it was... Near the end of the game, two minutes and 13 seconds left. The Broncos had the ball third and four at the Indianapolis 13-yard line. So this was the interception by Gilmore in the end zone, targeting uh, Tyree Cleveland. Maybe that's your first mistake there. Uh, Late pass from Russ on that was intercepted. I thought it was interesting that Herb Street mentioned, you know, maybe they just run in that situation because – the Colts had just called their last timeout. But I mean, the problem with the run on that play is you're, I mean, you're much, 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 much more likely to convert passing than running. Now, you don't want to throw an interception, of course, on that play, but you're much more likely to convert on third and four. It's weird. Um, you can't convert, though, running. It's not horrible to run there. And then you could even go for it on fourth down. Let's say if you pick up two, three yards, but the advantage that you're getting from a clock management standpoint at that point, when he's, you know, Herb Street's saying run down the clock, it's two minutes and 13 seconds left. There's a two minute warning. You don't, you don't get barely any benefit. I mean, the play is going to take six, seven, eight seconds off of the clock, even if it's an incompletion. So the extra time that you're running off the clock is maybe five seconds. You're getting an extra five seconds off the clock if you run in that situation versus passing so I don't like that part although I do think there is a case for running in that situation ignoring the clock management sort of stuff and saying that in this situation you run it if you pick up two three yards you get into a fourth down situation where you might want to go for it there because kicking the field goal going up by six is a little bit of a false uh, game there in that situation being up by three or being up by six at the end of the game doesn't help you that much because the other team is so motivated to go for a touchdown and win it in regulation versus if you're only up by three they're more willing to run it down and kick a field goal and then go to overtime which gives you another chance now in this game where zero touchdowns were scored maybe you don't have to worry about a touchdown beating you in regulation but normally that's the thought process there So what I would have done in this situation, I would have run the ball, not to run down the clock, well, partially to run down the clock, but you run it, you hope to pick up two to three yards, it's fourth and one or two, you hit the two-minute warning, and then you go for it again right at that point. I think that would have been a good way, and if you pick it up then, then you're, no, obviously, you're running out the clock, and the game is over at that point. You're not necessarily even needing to go for a touchdown on that first pass, I think it was just a poor play call. I don't know if Russ is calling. It seems like Russ has a lot of autonomy in that offense. I don't know who's calling up, but you don't need to go for the end zone on that one play. You need to pick up at least a few yards, put your, put yourself in position to go for it on fourth down and run out the clock there. Cause you don't, you don't need to score 
a touchdown. You could the the Colts didn't have any timeouts left. So that was the first one where you, you could go either way on that decision, but that's how I would have played it out. The second decision is something that was totally skipped over, but I think was probably more of a toss-up than you might think. Now, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of analytics. The Ben Baldwin bot is shut down in overtime. Our numbers are a little bit sketchy in overtime. It's, it's tough to figure out because we don't have a huge sample of what's going on in overtime. You have ties that come into play. The probability of a tie versus a win or loss also comes into play there. So the first was the Colts' decision to kick the field goal. People might think that that was an obvious call, three yards to go, fourth and three, you know, 48-yard field goal, so makeable, very makeable in Denver. So I get that. But in this situation, you're in a very unique situation where if you go for it and you eventually score the touchdown, it ends the game right there versus giving the ball back to the other team. They have four downs on offense because they need three points. Well, until you get into field goal range, at least for the Broncos, they're using all four down. So it's going to be a little bit tougher than normal to stop them. I know they hadn't been good in this game, but you know you have to look at the larger tar- timeline of how efficient you think the opposing offense is going to be. They did you know, march down the field pretty easily after that. So especially in these overtime situations, you have a little bit more juice towards going for it because if you go for it, you score the touchdown, the game is over. If you don't, you give it to the other team they're using enhanced offense, getting an extra down until they get into field goal range the entire time. Another factor to think about in this particular play was there was five minutes and 50 seconds left. So overtime is so short now with the 10-minute overtime that also from a clock management standpoint, if you go for it there and you get it, you don't even necessarily need to get the touchdown to end the game because you can run a decent amount more clock off if you can get another first down after that. And you could put the opponent, you put the Broncos in a position where if you if you don't end up getting in the end zone and you kick a shorter field goal, you could say, oh, you're in the same situation as you would have kicked the field goal earlier. No, you could have run another one, two, three minutes off the clock, and that can make a big difference in the Broncos' ability, not just to get into field goal range, but also if the Broncos' ability to score a touchdown and beat you eventually because there's such little time left in there. So, you know, I don't know. I think the numbers might have actually said the Colts should go for it here. I get it either way, but at least we should point out that it's more of a toss-up type of decision there. I don't think anyone was thinking that the Colts were really going to go for it in that situation, fourth and three there, or at least anyone in the kind of football normie announcer type of world. Okay, The last decision, and I don't know if anyone was questioning, because again, I was kind of just watched this on fast forward this morning and didn't really listen a lot. I don't know if anyone was questioning the final fourth and one decision. Um, 246 left, less than a yard at the five yard line. So your reward, if you get that, is very, very, very high because your touchdown probability is really high um, after going, after converting that. Uh, Basically a no brainer to go for this one. Now you can, with whatever the play call, not running it versus sneaking it versus how it was executed. All of that stuff can perfectly fine to be under scrutiny. The decision to go for it in that situation is for me, a no brainer. Um, Cause you kick it at that point, there's two forty six left. The Colts have both timeouts, at least initially they did call a timeout once they saw the Broncos lining up to go for it in that situation. But they, but originally they had both timeouts, plenty of time for the Colts to get the ball back, go down the field, kick a field goal, and win the game. So that is just like your downside is huge if you kick a field goal at this situation. 
And your upside is huge if you go for it in this situation because you're already inside of the five-yard line. And if you want to just do like a back-of-the-envelope type of calculation on this, and that's what I did. I said, okay, let's say you have a 75% chance of converting here because it's less than a yard, 70 75%. If you make it, let's say you have a 70% chance of winning the game either by uh, scoring a touchdown or kicking the field goal, stopping the other team, getting the ball back and kicking a field goal. Let's say you have a 20% chance of losing and about a 10% chance of uh, going to, of tying the game because you don't, let's say you, you, you going into a tie, let's say you, you convert that, but then you get stopped again and you have to kick a field goal and then you tie the game. So that gives you about 0.55, you know, wins. So more than half a win because you're getting the half win, you know, the tie situations also comes into play. Whereas if you kick in this situation, at least by my numbers, you basically have very little chance of winning, maybe a 20% chance of winning because you have to kick, stop them, get the ball back, kick kick the field goal. So a pretty, pretty low chance of winning. You have a pretty high chance of losing because I think the Colts in that situation, both timeouts, two minutes and 40 seconds left, needing a timeout, probably have about a 30, 40% chance of going down the field and doing that. And then you have maybe another 40% chance of winning of uh, the game being tied, which gives you about 0.4 wins. So 0.55 being conservative versus 0.4, it's a no-brainer, no, absolute no-brainer uh, decision there. Okay, let's talk about that particular play, though, because I think everyone saw it afterwards. You saw K.J. Hamler slamming down his helmet. He was upset that he was open on that one. A lot going on here. So first here is that when the play first opened up, you could see that the Colts were in a single high. They had one safety back there and then they were playing it looked like press man across the board with Gilmore on Cortland Sutton it could be a disguise there could be some disguise element but you know teams like to play man near the end zone so that's that's first that's the setup up top they had Jerry Judy in the slot and then they had Hamler on the outside and they had basically a pick a rub play and of course that's a more effective play against man coverage than it is against zone coverage and it worked to perfection Hamler was wide open so you know Russ didn't look there though so should Russ and I'm not getting into the details there but I think there is some evidence that Russ seeing the press man coverage knowing that that was the concept um on the on the top there should have been just looking there for his first read he was open almost immediately it was a walk-in walk-in touchdown there for for KJ Hamler now you could they could switch it off there as we saw what happened, right, when um, – well, actually, it wasn't a switch-off. But what's interesting about this play is, it, of course, it harkens back to the Super Bowl interception by Malcolm Butler, where there wasn't a switch-off on that play. But the way that Darrell Revis played the player who was trying to execute the pick or the rub pushed him back so far that he gave a lot, he gave room for Butler to make it around the pick and go ahead uh, and make the play. Now – the, the, the guy who was guarding Hamler here, I'm not sure who it was guarding Hamler. He, he didn't come close. He wasn't, you know, the, the, the pick was well executed and he would have had to come around on the front side of it and he had no chance of getting there in time. But maybe Russ was ha- having some flashbacks to that Super Bowl play, the Super Bowl interception. Maybe that's why he didn't look at it. I mean, maybe he's just a little too locked into Cortland Sutton at this point. Sutton has been his guy and it's just weird to choose that to be your guy to lock into, although it looked like he might have the, the tight end in the middle might have been the first read who fell down. But it's a little bit weird 
because he's going against Gilmore. And it was a long play concept. This is another thing. Man coverage, you know, the safety is kind of functioning as a spy, but long coverage did not get any pass rush on the play. So Russ wasn't even, didn't even need to, you know, step back and sidearm sling at that point. He could have tried to hold the ball a little bit longer, could have tried to run at a certain point too, because again, man coverage, you know, not everyone's necessarily looking here. Maybe he has lost some of his juice on the ground and didn't end up getting it there. But either way, you know, the end result is not converting that. And I think there was a lot left on, a lot of meat potentially left on the bone there. And then the interception from Gilmore, of course, earlier. And no matter whose fault this is or not, when we look at the larger picture for the Broncos and what's going to happen going forward, the two people who are going to be most under the microscope here are Russell Wilson and Nathaniel Hackett for the lack of success in these situations. One guy is a, you know, second tier, maybe third tier head coaching candidate at best, um, whether or not he was brought to Denver just to just as try to lure Aaron Rodgers or not, who knows, but um, he's not the type of guy who has any sort of built in, you know, credibility and gravitas that people are going to say, Oh, we got to stick with Hackett. He knows what he's doing. (laughs) If anything, from everything that we've seen from him so far this year, he hasn't proven that he did not have the, the bona fides coming into the bona fides coming into this year and things have gotten worse and worse. Russell Wilson, on the other hand, I mean, future hall of fame quarterback. If you watch my goat quarterback series for the most value added over the course of the career, he's probably somewhere in the twenties. He's going to, he's going to be ending his career, maybe even higher um, despite, you know, never having an MVP vote or anything like that. So consistently successful uh, super bowl champion guaranteed hall of famer traded away multiple first round picks gave him a $100 million guaranteed extension. Obviously, he has a lot more rope and a lot more leeway here. So I would not be surprised. I don't know if it's going to be a midseason sort of thing. But as of now, I think it's probably better than a 50-50 shot uh, unless the Broncos are really able to turn things around because they had a great chance at the beginning of the season in a tough conference to be at least 3-2 and two right now. Instead, at two and three, they are looking at maybe a 30% chance of making the playoffs. If that, more like a 25% chance of making the playoffs, only an 8% chance of winning the division at this point. It's looking, I would say it's probably better than a coin flip chance. And Nathaniel Hackett does not make it to 2023. I think there'll be an easy way for the Broncos to potentially turn the page. I don't know if it'll happen in season, but he's, he's, he's climbing quickly climbing the rankings of head coaches potentially on their way out with, of course, Matt Rule being being the king in that discussion. Okay, let's get that. Let's get to some more of the numbers, okay, for this particular game because I think there's also some interesting things that went on here. I mean, both quarterbacks were in the 30s for their grading, so not a whole lot to say there. Uh, Sacks galore in this game, but... If anything, maybe we can cut Matt Ryan a little bit more slack here. His offensive line graded in the 30s for pass protection. The Broncos were in the 70s. The if you let me let me just give you a perfect like encapsulation of Russ and why he has these sack issues here and how deadly that they can be. I mean, four sacks he took. Now, two of those sacks 
he didn't actually take the sack until over three seconds. So I know the pressures were coming earlier than three seconds, but that's a lot of time. One of them, it wasn't until four seconds. And let's look at that particular play because the fourth sack that he took, this is like emblematic of what he's never been able to clean up. Maybe part of it is just not being able to see so well out of the pocket, but he just hasn't been able to clean up. That's extremely important. There was on the fourth sack, it was second and three. So a really good position to be in, like a high expected points down in distance to be in right there. Um, A safety blitz, maybe should have seen it, maybe didn't, but he did his rust thing and he ducked under and got under the sack, a very quick pressure. And then he held the ball and looked and looked and and maybe didn't want to just throw it at the tight end's feet, maybe couldn't see. And then eventually he just took a sack on that play in the pocket and that play is negative two expected points, massively negative. I mean, an interception is something, depending upon when, what down in distance it happens, could be like negative four, negative five. So it's almost like half an interception on that type of play. It puts them in a really bad situation. In fact, if you look at the offensive plays that Russ had in this game, the only ones that were worse from an expect, expected point standpoint were his two interceptions and the fourth down failure at the end. This is the fourth most negative play in this game, taking this sack on second and three. You just can't do that. You just really cannot do that, especially when his offensive line was not nearly as poor as what we saw on the other side uh, with the Colts. Um, and when we talk about that, I want to talk about Baron Browning a little bit on the Colts. I mean, Bradley Chubb was awesome too. 90 grade, three sacks, awesome, awesome here. But Browning was somewhat of a revelation in this game. If you guys are watching this, he's a third round draft pick from 2021, mostly played off ball at Ohio State. He only had 35 snaps in his final season in 2020 um, where he rushed the passer. He was being used as an edge player a la... Micah Parsons here, you know, a 240 pound sort of guy who's a little bit lower. And I think this is going to be a big revelation for the NFL going forward, seeing the success of Parsons first. And then now someone like Brownie, because low key, and I know this is a little bit apocryphal to say, Brownie looked a little bit wearing 56 coming off the edge. You look a little bit like old Von Miller, <laughs> 58 here. I mean, a little bit smaller than, than Miller. Um, but he was getting a lot of pressure, 10 pressures on 20 pass rush snaps for him. Now he got injured in the fourth quarter, didn't come back, wrist injury. We'll see about that. Hopefully that doesn't derail him going forward here. But with Randy Gregory out, boom, this might be of a, like a blessing, a little bit of blessing in disguise here with Browning able to come in. Two sacks, additional three hits, and then five more hurries to get him up to the 10 pressures that he had. 92.8 grade, the highest graded player uh, in the game. And when you bring up the guy's measurables, and this is, again, maybe we've got to start looking at some more of these off-ball linebackers in college and looking at their measurables, because only 245 pounds, yes, but 40-yard dash for Browning, 4.51, which is in the 97th percentile for an edge player. His vert, 40 inches, 97th percentile. His broad jump, almost 11 feet, 10 feet, 10 inches, 98th percentile. Uh, three cone, 6.78, 98th percentile. 20-yard shuttle, 4.23, only, only 88th percentile. You know, this 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 may be an idea. Look at like big-time programs like Penn State and Ohio State 
and Alabama and others, look at their linebackers who are playing off ball, who may not, you know, fit into whatever scheme when coaches are looking for bigger guys on the edge here, uh, where you need to worry about the run. You need to worry about setting that edge a little bit more in college than you do in the pros. And maybe you can find some explosive pass rushers for the NFL where you can turn these guys loose a little bit better um, facing big time pass offenses in the other way. Uh, just the value equation becomes very different for a lower weight, potentially poor running, run stopping pass rusher, much more valuable in the pros than in college. So I'm going to be watching this guy going forward. I think he is definitely something to watch. I mean, Gilmore's the other story, the by far and away the best graded player on the Colts here. We saw the play at the end of the game. We saw the interception. We saw the stuff going on there. He looked like the old defensive player of the year that we saw a few years back. And for the Colts, you know, they're going to need a lot of defense because that offensive line is bad, bad, bad. And Ryan is, does not seem to have the even limited mobility you need to move around the pocket and get out of, of sacks. Uh, another player to highlight in this game, if you want to just think about what can happen going forward is probably Alec Pierce, the second round pick at wide receiver for the Colts. I mean, the Colts really are bereft of wide receiving talent. Uh, Michael Pittman is the guy. He's been great. He's not really a downfield sort of guy. Paris Campbell mostly had been running wind sprints this year, although he did have two targets for 22 yards in this game. But Alec Pierce ran 36 of 48 routes. Uh, nine targets, eight catches, 84 yards. Led the team in receptions, targets, and yards in this game. Something to watch going forward because he is also a guy who can get downfield. Now, can Ryan get the ball to him downfield with that offensive line? Probably not, but he's a big dude. He was a combine winner, you know, a um, athletic winner of the combine. So it's good to see something from him because they really need another option at wide receiver without Campbell being able to do so much this game. So he's the other guy to keep a light on for in this going forward and how these teams are going to play. Uh, I mentioned the Broncos are down to about 25% probability to make the playoffs. The Colts right now have boosted it back up to 51%. So this was, again, a very influential game for playoff probabilities. Whoever won was going to be over 50%. Whoever lost is going to be closer to 25% in this game. So the Colts up to 50%, 34% chance to win the division here, basically splitting that out with Jacksonville and Tennessee. So they, they still got a chance, but they got a lot to fix up um, offensively because Things are not going so hot for Matt Ryan. Okay, let's talk a little bit, Russ and Ryan, like on a larger arc, what we're thinking about these guys going forward. Okay, right now, Wilson for the year has a 66.7 grade, which is the worst of his career, you know, by far the worst of his career. He had a 73.9 last year. So that was the second worst. And yeah, so it's even worse than what we saw last year when things were not going so hot. And if we look at Ryan, 58.9 grade this year, also the worst of his career. And, you know, last year, even though there were some struggles going on, he had a 75 grade, so significantly down from that. Um, Russell Wilson, he has slightly negative EPA per play this year. His EPA has actually looked a little bit better. Again, worst of his career. And the troubling trend, while... In 2020 and 2021, he started off the season hot. 
And then he just declined significantly in 2020, where he was the MVP favorite midway through the season. 2021, he had the injury, never really came back to be very good after that. But those were his second and third worst seasons in terms of efficiency. So now we have worst season 2022, second worst season 2021, third worst season 2020. Not good. We're getting more and more evidence for Russell Wilson that there's something to be worried about here as far as how much this is going to stick and how much is going to decline. And the best way that I found for estimating, you know, trying to say how, how much should we react to what we've seen recently versus what we've seen in the past from a type of Hall of Fame player who is, at least at this point for Wilson, I don't think he's declining that much physically. Maybe there are some issues with his escapability coming into play, but um, at 33 years old, he's not really hitting the point where you definitely need to build in a significant age decline into his projection. But if you've, if you've seen any of the quarterback rankings that I've done, the rankings, I update them during the season for how good players have been this year. And of course, both these guys have been very, very bad. Bottom 10 quarterbacks um, so far this, this season, Ryan particularly bad in those measures. But I also have a career number, which really, you know, it, it emphasizes recent seasons more than past seasons. Once you get past about five seasons into the uh, into history, you're, you're not getting that much of an effect off of it. But going into this year, Wilson was ninth, according to my rankings, uh, right below Lamar Jackson at eighth. Believe it or not, Ryan Tannehill was 10th because of how well he's been grading and everything else so far this year. And Matthew Stafford was right after that at 11th. Wilson has already fallen a couple of spots. Tannehill's now above him. I believe Stafford's going to be above him when I update the numbers, even though Stafford's been so far this bad this year. So Wilson is falling, according to – we have to start adjusting. Now, should we adjust him being outside of a top 12, top half quarterback? I don't think we're at that point yet, but we're getting closer. We're getting much closer to starting to do that if this continues on so far this season. And that's what you have to worry about when we talk about a guy who has a $100 million guarantee and is going to be around there for a very, very long time for what you paid for him. But then again, saying you have the 11th or 12th best quarterback in the NFL, I still haven't projected above guys like Derek Carr, um, definitely above Matt Ryan, uh, still above Kyler Murray. So we'll see. We'll see where he is going forward. I still am holding out some hope, but we definitely need to be adjusting down our expectations for Russ as we're getting more and more evidence of how bad that he is. All right, before we get to the... Sunday action, looking at some best recreational bets here. Talk about a place you can place those bets, and that's DraftKings Sportsbook, the official sports betting partner of the NFL. We're talking touchdowns, big plays, and even bigger wins. New customers can bet just $5 on any NFL team to win and get $200 in free bets if they do. If that's not enough, everyone can boost their winnings with DraftKings stepped-up same-game parlays. Right now, for every leg you add, you can boost your winnings up to 100%. With bigger payouts than ever, why bet on football anywhere else? To make things even sweeter, you can throw down on stepped-up same-game parlays once per game day all season long. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code PFF to get $200 in free bets if your team wins when you place a $5 bet on any football game. That's code PFF at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. And the Unexpected Points podcast is sponsored by Western and Southern Financial Group. While you focus on your roster moves, Western and Southern helps advance your money moves. Buying a first home, 
planning to start a family, wondering how to make your money grow. Western and Southern's playbook of life insurance investments and retirement solution helps you rest assured on game day. Uh, team up to understand the and address goals with the game plan built just for you. Get started at westernandsouthern.com slash PFF. And also PFF app, fantasy football heads, get it, start set decisions, rankings, everything you need in a very cool streamlined format and also access to tons of PFF proprietary stats that help project how these guys are going to do in the coming weeks and for the rest of the season. All right, let's get to the weekend action and uh, a little mea culpa here. Uh, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to buzz myself about the, this game last night, probably the most embarrassing uh, bet was that I, I came on, the the forecast podcast. Any of you who are familiar with that, George Chahuri and Eric Eager, the former co-host there. Eric has has moved on from from PFF, um, but he's bringing in other people there. So unfortunately for me, he had me on that podcast and was asking about Thursday night. Thursday night play. I didn't really like anything that much, but I did throw out over forty two. So you know that was dead. <laughs> that was dead very early. Uh, I just have too much faith in these guys. I'm regression. I'm a slave to regression. And uh, but that was a lot of evidence, a lot more evidence in the way of saying, man, maybe these offenses truly are just broken. I know we give credit to the defense, too. So but that was bad. I mean, I got a double buzz. I got a, got a double buzz myself for that one. That was so bad. But last weekend, I think we're two and one on the best bets. Again, this is for recreational purposes only. Don't mortgage the house on this. Don't even take out a home equity loan. Don't do anything on on these bets. But I have a few things going on this weekend that I like a lot. Um, first is for Sunday night. So it's always fun to have something on Sunday night, the Island game, uh, Bengals plus three and a half at Baltimore Ravens. Why, why Bengals plus three and a half at Baltimore Ravens? Well, the Ravens offense, and we saw this a lot last week when they failed to score in the second half, but even before that, um, Steven Ruiz wrote a good article from the ringer, a friend of the pod. Uh, he wrote a good article, friend of me, maybe of the pod, because I like to get on these uh, these film guys. But he wrote a good article, um, not this week, but last week about some fragility in the Ravens offense. I agreed with that. They were much higher in their efficiency versus their success rates. Very reliant upon Lamar Jackson and reliant upon Lamar Jackson in a way that's not necessarily sustainable because we were talking about big plays, a couple of huge plays to Rashad Bateman some big throws to Devin DuVernay um, and runs, you know, multiple 50 plus yard touchdown runs and accounting for 65% of the rushing offense for the Ravens who just haven't been able to run the ball. Even with the return of JK Dobbins, 13 carries 41 yards last year, still not great running the ball. Um, It's just not a sustainable offensive formula. Maybe we wouldn't be so worried about that if the defense was playing better, but how the defense has played this year, and you know, they have guys on the back end, right? They have Marcus Peters. They have Marlon Humphrey. They have good, solid players on the back end here. But as far as how they've been playing so far this season, it's just not great, especially because they cannot generate pressure. They've been one of the worst teams in the league as far as generating, well, at least, at least what I like to look at, which are the fast pressures for sure. You know, they're down in the bottom 10 for their fast pressure rate. Owe has been okay. Uh, did not mean to rhyme that, but I did. 
Um, so he's been okay there, but their fast pressure, you know, rank of 25, I mean, 25 in total pressure, 23 in fast pressure. They're just not able to generate a lot up front. And you're asking a lot of the back end to continue cover up for it, especially when it's a back end that likes to take chances. And I know it's been their formula before with Wink Martindale in the past. Now Wink Martindale has moved on to the Giants. It's been their formula to, even if we're not getting the pressure up front, we're going to blitz a lot. Uh, we're going to bring that pressure and then we're going to get some mistakes on the back end and they're still doing that to a degree it's definitely happening so far this year but it hasn't been as successful actually getting pressure even when they're blitzing they would have much better pressure they much better ranking than 25th uh, for how quickly that they were getting pressure so there's a little bit of problems defensively Uh, some of the internal numbers defensively are not great we obviously saw the comeback by Tua uh, there wasn't a lot of points for the Bills, but they were consistently successful on on offense, and that can also be a bit of a warning sign when we're talking about what will happen going forward. Uh, just to break down the exact numbers right now for the Ravens, against the run, 23rd, best success rate defensively against the run, 20th against the pass, 26th overall. So not not playing well. A little bit better expected points added because, again, they're getting turnovers here uh, 21st, but you know not, not good defensively. You combine that with the differentials on offense, unsustainability of the stats on offense, and I start to get a little bit worried. Now, the, the, uh, the Bengals have not been good. They're not getting explosive plays this year. But I look at that and I say, Joe Burrow, T. Higgins, Jamar Chase, that'll start to come. That'll start to come a bit. What they've been hampered by more than anything is self-inflicted wounds when it comes to how they're playing offensively. Uh, Joe Mixon, if you look at him, and I have these fantasy point expectation numbers, like what you would expect based upon usage. Joe Mixon is like off the charts for what you would expect, but he's not doing anything because he's he's getting a ton of high-value touches where he's losing a ton of expected points for the team by not converting near the end zone, first down, high value downs, awful performance for him. Uh, and that running game, if you look at right now, 30th in success rate running the ball, 31st in EPA per play, whereas they're 10th and 12th passing the ball. There's kind of like low key. The passing game has not been as bad as some people think. They're not getting the explosive plays, but they are a top 10 team in success rate. And the sack count, which was significant for Burrow earlier this year, has trended down every week. Only two sacks two weeks ago, only one sack last week. And it's not just the opponent. And again, they have a good opponent this week. It's not just the opponent. It's that he's taking fewer sacks per pressure also, which is key. Um, He was taking about a third of the time he was pressured. He was taking a sack the first two weeks against the Steelers and against the Cowboys in the last two weeks. He has not been taking that pressure. Again, this game is not going to be a game where he's facing a lot of quick pressure, but we need Zach Taylor to help us out a little bit offensively. This is almost having deja vu from the 2021 season where they started off run heavy and then they flipped it around for the second half of the season And we need that. We need that again this year because they're just this leading on Joe Mixon on early downs is not helping them at all. It's just putting them in worse situations. And because more difficult to generate these explosive plays when you're not, when you're not uh, passing the ball enough on these first downs. I mean, they are over expectation on the year. I'm not going to get on too much, but they really leaned into that at the end of last year 
um, which gave them a huge run going into the playoffs and propelled them <clears throat> into the playoffs last year. If we look at the overall numbers for these teams, as far as how well they played this year, another low key thing for the the Bengals and their their competition has been poor. They've been playing, you know, backup quarterbacks, a lot of backup quarterbacks, but they have the best defensive ranking as far as their adjusted scores they've given up so far this year. And if you if you make a you know a quality adjustment for that against quarterbacks, it would still put them in the top ten. So they've played more like a top ten defense, and that's something that's probably not part of this. Uh, this betting line. And lastly, if we're looking at the line, you know, getting that half, getting that half point, getting over that key number of three, that's huge. So if you can get three and a half Bengals Sunday night, favorite play for the weekend. Okay. Next favorite play. And I'm just going to throw this out there because I don't have a lot else that I like this weekend, but, and maybe I'm falling into the, the same thing I fell into last night with the over, but it's over 39 points, Panthers, 49ers. 39 point over under in our year of the Lord, 2022, an NFL game, 39 points. And it's Baker Mayfield versus Jimmy Garoppolo. Depending upon who you're talking to, that may be like two bad quarterbacks to average ish sort of quarterbacks. Clearly not, you know, Baker particularly might be playing like the worst quarterback in the NFL this year, but I don't think anyone would say those guys in a vacuum are, you know, two of the worst starters in the NFL. Maybe some people would say that about Baker now. I'm not sure, but he's shown something in the past. He's not, he's shown a lot more than someone like Daniel Jones has ever shown in their, in their career so far, to give an example, definitely showed more than Sam Darnold, although he hasn't performed as well as Sam Darnold so far this year. So we're betting on a little bit of a regression here for, um, for Baker to get better, although he is going against what may be the best defense in the NFL that can generate a lot of pressure. So, yeah, that's what's built into that 39-point uh, spread. But what's really built in it is Baker being bad this and this this defense getting a lot of pressure on him. We'll see if that happens or not. Um, offensive line, Iki Iquanu's had some problems. Uh, the rookie at left tackle hasn't been great, but it, it's it's gelling, I think, a little bit after all the investment that they put in there in the offseason. And with Garoppolo, he wasn't very good against the Seahawks. He was bad, I would say, against the Broncos. And he was pretty good against um, the Rams. I know it's like Debo Samuel hour, but at the same time, they're converting third downs. They're getting those conversions back. Jimmy has been a guy who's been a you know a top five, top six EPA per play type of quarterback. Um, the thing that's going to be bad for him in this game is the offensive line falling apart. Really only have one of four starters on that offensive line are any good, but I, I have some confidence in Shanahan's ability to scheme there. And even if they're not running the ball, well, Jimmy's ability with a full complement of receivers, you know, everyone's there, Kittle, Debo, uh, Brandon, Ayuk, use check. If you want to say him coming out of the backfield, being able to generate some points. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things where if you're going to model this out, it's almost going to tell you every time, unless you have two backup quarterbacks going against each other to bet an over on 39. And I'm going to go ahead, you know, plug my nose, hold my nose and do it here. Despite the fact that Baker's looked like maybe the worst quarterback in the NFL so far this year. And the last play that I have, and this is somewhat similar to the, like the, the Herbert, like rib injury play that I had a couple of weeks ago where I blew it. And I took the under rather than taking, the Jaguars when they played against each other, because I thought that Herbert's injury was going to affect them a lot more than some people were suspecting. Uh, This is kind of like a Daniel Jones injury 
thing here where I'm looking at the Packers versus the Giants. Two different ways you can play this. Packers minus eight. Has that gone to eight and a half? Um, so Packers minus eight or under 41. And I know 41 is low. I just talked about how you can blind bet 39 under. But here's the thing for the Giants and their offense so far this year. Um, as much as we like Saquon Barkley and what he's been able to do with the big runs, that can come and that can go. And there's probably some sustainability to his, to him, you know, vastly outperforming the success rate for this team um, because he is a big play back, you know, a big play type of back. But if you look at them so far this year and what they've done running the ball, they're 21st in rushing success rate and they're seventh in EPA per play. So a huge difference in there. Um, dropping back to pass, they're in the mid twenties. They still stink dropping back to pass, but they're 15th overall in EPA per play because of the fact that they've been running the ball so well. Part of that, though, part of that, and a big, huge part of that is Daniel Jones. They're rushing expected points added right now, 3.6 total positive EPA over the entire season. That that sounds bad, but for running the ball, it's pretty good. Uh, you know, there are a few teams that that even have positive EPA like the Browns would be a team that has positive EPA running the ball. Not a lot of teams that do. So, but three of that, almost all of that on design runs is from Daniel Jones. And then Daniel Jones has another 12 expected points added on scrambles this year. If you take out the scrambles, you take out the design runs for Daniel Jones, he's been very negative, um, dropping back to pass. I mean, he's negative 11 drop in his total drop back EPA right now. And that includes positive 11 12 in scrambles that go into that so you take that out he's even lower you take that out his drop back numbers become close to bottom of the nfl uh no kenny galladay no Kadarius tony still you got richie james and sills and darius slayton running around out there um just nothing there offensively and i think this downgrade for this giants offense is is tremendous if Daniel Jones cannot run. I know he's maybe a lot better mobility than you think, but that ankle injury I think is going to affect him, and he's not going to be able to generate the type of uh, rushing production we've seen from him because he has been a top four quarterback this year, generating value through scrambling and runs this year. So that's going to be compromised. And the other thing is, like if he gets another ankle injury, this is a guy who's pretty good at taking sacks. Um, if, if he hurts that, you know, Terod Taylor is also out. So I don't know who we have coming in. Davis Webb, whatever guys that they've been scrubbing through um, off of the streets to bring in. That is also a, a possibility that we're looking at there um, that's, that's significant. You know, maybe it's not 25%, but maybe it's 5 10 15% chance that Jones gets knocked out of this game at least or gets even further compromised physically, and they don't have anyone to back him up. That that's that your backup quarterback position is a little bit more important than some people think and probably not being priced properly in there. So if you want to take under 41, I would get that It's a little bit scarier. Uh, otherwise, I think taking the Packers minus eight, it's a big number. Um, it's not the greatest number because it's over seven, but I still think the Packers minus eight would be my favorite uh, play in that game. And the third recommendation I have for this weekend. 
All right, everybody. Hopefully you enjoyed this Thursday wrap-up. I'll be coming back on Monday with a little bit more rapid-fire uh, wrap-ups of all of Sunday's action. And then next week we get some buys, you know, hands together, pray emoji. Um, although, you know, that's actually a high-five emoji, but it's uh, people use it for pray emoji. So thank you, NFL, for having some buys next week, which makes my life a lot easier, especially that Monday wrap-up show. I'll be coming to you on YouTube at 930 ish whenever sam and steve wrap up which can take you know two and a half three hours um on on the pff nfl pod i'll be coming to you that morning give me a thumbs up leave me some comments i do like to look at the comments and i'll even answer some negative comments you know someone was getting on me about being too mean to jimmy garoppolo in the comments for the uh wrap up on monday and i was like dude i am like i'm number one jimmy jimmy g truther i had a whole section of the pod maybe he didn't get to it on why Jimmy G is probably worth more than people give him credit for. So go ahead, give some comments there. I appreciate anyone who is tuning in and, you know, putting the effort in there. I'm much more willing to answer that comment than someone firing off a reply on Twitter who just wants to, you know, yell about something. Uh, Go ahead. And also, yeah, if you want to see more information, graphs, and other things I'm sending out, follow me on Twitter also at Kevin Cole PFF. Okay. Thanks everybody for tuning in. I'll be talking to you Monday morning. Enjoy this weekend of NFL action. Thanks, everyone.